Welcome to 2024, Grumpy Strategists. This is the first episode of the new year, and it's episode 11. I'm Michael Shoebridge, and I'm joined by Dr. Marcus Hellyer. Marcus, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Michael, and also to our listeners. Well, it hasn't really been a quiet Christmas New Year period. We left, and we were talking about the Middle East, and we're back And I think we've still got to talk about the Middle East, but we'll use this podcast to do a bit on the Middle East and what it means for Australia and capability choices, and then really focus on what's the government going to do or should be doing around defence in the May budget, because May isn't that far away. Here we are at the end of January. No, if you're preparing the May budget in defence, you need to have a pretty well fully formed and fleshed out investment program. And so one would hope that defence has that by now, because if they don't have it now or very soon, it's not going to be in the May budget. And it's Charles Dickens' time for the Albanese government. They created great expectations last year with things like the strategic review and the review of the surface fleet. And now it's time to meet those expectations. Yes, uh, a year on from the DSR being delivered to the government, it would be nice to see some of those rapid decisions actually being rapidly decided on. Yes. So now first to the Middle East. So if you read the speeches and releases of people like US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken or US President Joe Biden or visiting EU and European leaders that are traveling the Middle East or even our foreign minister Penny Wong, you'll hear about calls for de-escalation and calls for negotiation, calls for a two-state solution for Palestine. Out of these Western leaders that are supporting Israel, there's a unanimous drive to say, we don't want the conflict to escalate. And yet, looking at the Christmas New Year period, the conflict has escalated every week. Uh, I would agree to use that, the term that political scientists use. We're seeing horizontal escalation. So the conflict is spreading and more actors are getting involved. Most obviously the Houthis, who are striking commercial shipping in the Red Sea. But we're also seeing some other forms. So today there was a, a strike on US forces in Jordan. And those were the first US service people killed in this particular conflict. And of course, the, the other area of escalation which hasn't quite occurred yet, there's been a little bit, is, of course, Hezbollah, which is probably the most powerful actor in Israel's near region. And and if, if that goes off, all bets are off. Yes, well, you're right. They're the big swing card beyond Iran itself in the region. At the most, what Hezbollah seems to have done so far is what you have to call polite escalation. So just saying, don't forget I'm here. A few prods and missiles and anti-tank weapons fired into Israel, causing a large evacuation, actually, of Israeli citizens, which that displacement of Israeli citizens is one of the big driving pressures on on Israel. They've made Israel move its population back from the Mm -hmm. northern border. But apart from that, Hezbollah is sitting on on the sidelines. It's interesting, isn't it? So we're talking about Hamas and Hezbollah, and now we've all learnt more about the Houthis. Uh, Only people that followed the region would have even heard of the Houthis before, but they've been in a civil war that's had 350,000 deaths, so they're no stranger to death and destruction. Well, not just a civil war. I mean, the Houthis not only fought the other half, of Yemen to a standstill, but they fought the Saudis and the Emiratis to a standstill as well. So I find it very, very hard to believe that they are going to be deterred or defeated by a few airstrikes or cruise missile strikes. Yes, well, at most they'll have their launch numbers reduced by having stockpiles and launches reduced and maybe radars making them less able to find targets. But 
it looks like they will be able to persist for as long as they want to. An interesting thing about attacks like the one into Jordan killing three US service personnel and looking like it's injured around 30 is we don't even know the name of the group. And you've made this point before that war has democratised through technology. So we know that these service people were killed by armed drones, but we don't know who did it. And that's the story to me in part of this horizontal escalation in the Middle East. We, we know what weapons will do the killing. And we know that most of them are supplied by Iran, but we don't know who's firing them. Mm-hmm. It, it really is a new age of war where it's not just major, it's not just states and major states. We can't even deter sub-state regional actors whose names we don't even know. Mm. There are many, many actors and they have access to relatively advanced weapons. So we see that with the Houthis, which seem to have relatively unconstrained ability to keep firing off cruise missiles on drones against commercial shipping and West and warships. So I guess this is, you know, one of the clear lessons of the last decade is the democratization of technology. And when you marry that up with another issue we've spoken about, which this is sort of potentially impending age of chaos, is that there are many, many actors out there, many, many actors out there. And I think it's a bit misleading to describe all of these players as simply Iranian proxies, as these kindless, kind of mindless drones at the surface of the, the Ayatollahs in Iran. They all have their own motivations, but I think one of the, the common uh, motivations is this broader dissatisfaction with the, you call it the post-World War II settlement or the post-colonial settlement, but it's that issue of they just don't like things the way they are. So we quite often describe uh, Xi's China as a revisionist power. Yes, but there are many other people who want to revise where we are. The way things are, that's right. I think you're right about groups like Hamas and Hezbollah and the Houthis and Iranian-backed Iraqi militias, maybe they're some of the ones behind the Jordan attack. They are all Iranian proxies in that they're supplied, trained and equipped by Iran, but they have their own goals. And they have shared goals like the damaging and destruction of Israel and the damage and ejection of the Middle East uh, of the US. So they have some things they're happy to work together on. Uh, that doesn't mean they're all under the direct control of Iran, but Iran plays an important so, role in training and equipping them. So sometimes you look at this and you sort of have this image of things are crumbling and the Western states led by the US are trying to hold things up as everything's crumbling around them and trying to rebuild it. But it's it's very easy, I think, to make things crumble and very hard to m- maintain order and to, to move to what does that mean for military capability? Well, Western military capability is is kind of defensive in a way. The Royal Navy, I think, has become the embodiment of that. So I was reading a, a piece that, that said the, the Royal Navy has no strike capability on its surface ships. So it has no land attack missiles on its ships. And because it retired Harpoon and hasn't brought the replacement in it actually has no maritime strike capability yes. so they've put so much money into their their two aircraft carriers neither of which is available to help out in well, the red sea and, and their nuclear enterprise and into their ssn sound familiar anyway and the ssn's the only 
vessels that can carry uh, cruise missiles, and none of them are available. So you take those two exquisitely expensive capabilities out of the mix, and the Royal Navy, basically, all it can do is sit there and defend itself. Yeah, well, one thing that struck me about the Red Sea mission, and I think it was the right decision of the UK government to put warships in there. So HMS Diamond, for example, has been shooting down drones and anti-ship missiles and protecting not just itself, but maritime shipping. But one thing that struck me is to say it's success to shoot down Houthi missiles and drones that otherwise would hit your ship and merchant ships. The Houthis, when they fire a kamikaze drone or they fire an anti-ship missile, they're not expecting to get it back. So when it's shot down, yes, it hasn't hit something, but it's not really a loss to the Houthis because they loved it so much they set it free when they launched it. Well, even if they don't hit anything, it's still a victory in the sense of that broader project of challenging the world order. Well, it's disrupted shipping. It's imposing cost on the world. It's drawing attention to the conflict in Israel and Palestine. It's made the Houthis an international name and brand and one that looks defiant and successful. And then as we see, you fire off enough anti-ship missiles and use enough um, drones you end up killing somebody. And that's what's just happened, to, tragically, to three US service people in Jordan, killed with an armed drone. So just having a defensive game is deterring nobody. And then to not just have a defensive game, you've got to cause cost to decision makers in ways that matter to them. And the Houthis, as you've said, they've just fought this brutal civil war with engagement of pretty powerful regional militaries, in the case of the UAE and the Saudis. You've got to do a lot to deter them. And deterring them is not reducing their missiles stockpile and successfully defending against the things they fire. You know, to me, something that's possible to deter them is you destroy some of the leadership and the bases they're meeting and operating from. But that's escalation beyond what we're hearing anyone is willing to do. Well, I think that's it. Um, the US has said it's not going to escalate and it's trying to discourage other people from escalating. Well, that doesn't seem to be working particularly well. I'm not sure that the US itself escalating by broadening strikes on Yemen, for example, or targeting the leadership is going to achieve anything else. And I think that's the the really concerning thing about this, this potential age of, of chaos is that Western approaches to deterrence simply are ineffective. And perhaps that's the whole that was the whole narrative of the war in Afghanistan for 20 years that the US the most powerful military in the history of the world was unable to deter or defeat uh, a bunch of Central Asian subsistence farmers well deterrence only works when you understand the stakes that the adversary have and you can threaten those core interests and the problem is with the idea that the last thing anyone wants is to escalate you're just sending a message to all these subnational actors that this is their moment to shine and they're taking those opportunities. It does make you think that a strategy based wholly on deterrence looks pretty shaky Mm. because if it doesn't work against these unnamed, unknown sub-regional actors, what makes us think it's going to work with a very major power like China? Mm-hmm. And then that, that brings me straight to your point about the Royal Navy. So the Royal Navy might have capability limitations, but they could send a warship to participate in the Red Sea. Our Navy couldn't send a warship. Looks like it's going to be taking some Anzacs out of service because we can't crew them. But in an actual war, our Navy has very limited strike capability and is optimised to defend its own ships. Well, we're seeing that's not working well against the Houthis. Mm. So why would it work against the PLA? 
Yes, well, I never quite understand the discussion around our Navy, which is it's about defending sea lanes of communication. And it's like, well, how do you do that with a bunch of ships that can only defend themselves? There's no way you can protect the entire sea lane of communication from Australia to Japan or the UK or the US or the the Middle East. Well, a combined international force can't protect that chunk of the Red Sea from the Houthis. You know, at some level, you need to be able to destroy the threats. And we don't have that ability. At least the UK has some carriers. We don't have carriers. Our submarines have no land strike capability. I don't think that's going to be fixed when we get SSNs because, quite frankly, SSNs are the least cost-effective way of delivering land strike you can possibly imagine. I mean, I think it's a particularly dumb way of developing a land strike capability. And so our, our Navy is pretty much toothless. There's some talk of putting tomahawks on the AWDs, but when you look at our three, three air warfare destroyers... They're our only area air defense asset. They're our best anti-submarine asset. There's only three of them, which means you've probably got one available. And quite frankly, they're the only thing that has any ability to defend an Australian city. So you're probably not going to send them away. So we have a pretty much toothless uh, Navy. Which probably gets us nicely to great expectations and the Albanese government's moment to shine on defense in the May budget. So you made the point that the strategic review was handed to the Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister Miles on the 14th of February last year. So that'll we be... two weeks away. Two weeks away from its first The first, first anniversary birthday. of the DSR. And we were told rapid decisions were going to happen. Well, those rapid decisions need to happen in this budget or the government is going to be going to the next election having talked a big game and played a very small game. So you've, you've made the point before that, well, you have to start with some funding. What needs to be in the May budget on defence funding? Well, I think you can have great ex expectations and you can have minimal expectations. And I think the minimal expectation is that the government publishes an an actual 10-year funding line. So the previous government in the 2016 white paper set out a 10-year line of funding in black and white, which by and large it stuck to. And in its defence strategic update in 2020, it extended that. And that's what the previous government has inherited. And by and large, they've stuck to it. But it has not laid out uh, what comes after when that line of funding... So the 10 years runs out in 2030, and here we are now in 2024. So it's only six years of guidance now. Yes, but the thing is, is that line of funding that the, the current government inherited had no compensation for loss of buying power through inflation. And there's and been it, high levels of inflation ever since. We have had very high levels of inflation. And and that's sort of cumulative. It's like compound interest. Even if inflation goes back to normal levels, yep. you'll be suffering in perpetuity for the loss of buying power caused by previous year's inflation. The other thing that Defence has not received any adjustment for is, of course, the additional cost of the nuclear submarine program. So there was in our last year's budget, the 22-23 budget, this strange thing floating around. Some kind of contingency. A line. contingency reserve. Now, it wasn't spelled out in a line of numbers or how much that would be. So at the moment, there's the current government has really only published numbers out to the end of the forward estimates. Beyond that, there's this funny contingency reserve. But if you sort of look at it, it looks like about $30 billion. Between now and 2030, extra to what was already left by the previous government. uh, Well, probably, no, it's out to about 2033-ish. Right, yeah. Uh, And you go, well, $30 billion, what, what does that number mean? And I 
to me, when I look at it, I go back to the the numbers that the government released when it announced the so-called optimal pathway to acquire SSNs. And what they said at the time is that the attack class would have cost in the order of $30 billion over the decade. Yep. And But the SSN program would cost somewhere in the order of $58 billion over the decade. Right, so, so there's the nearly difference. a $30 billion yeah. difference. So, so that contingency reserve really just covers the additional cost of SSNs. Okay. So, so, so the worst case in the May budget is the government does say, here's a 10-year funding envelope, but the only increase is actually just enough to pay for the Orca submarines. Yes, I, and that means the rest of the Defence Force is taking a real cut because it's got to eat the inflation problem. And this is at a time when the government said there's more ambition for Australia, have, Australia having military power through the strategic review. So worst case is Defence is in a worse position with more to do and less money, <laughs> but the government makes a virtue out of the essential bill for the nuclear submarine. Yes, well, you're very cynical there, Michael. But yes, in, in my view, that would be the absolute minimum because what we also know is that the the shopping list the capability plan was already unaffordable and they've injected the SSNs into it. So even mm-hmm. if you pay for the additional cost of SSNs, everything else is still unaffordable. You've still got an unaffordable Christmas list that is the defense investment plan for yes. all the things at once. And, and the other issue is is the DSR quite rightly said you need to do more sooner. Mm. So it's it's all well and good saying, well, you'll get some money at the back end of the decade, but you actually need money sooner. Well, and it's a free gift for a current government to say, my predecessors 10 years from now will give you more money. And as we've just seen with the stage three tax cuts, promises made can be different to decisions provided. Yes. So I think there needs to be real money sooner. But the, the problem is always, well, to do that, you need to decide what you're going to buy. Mm. And, and as we've seen, we still don't have a new investment program for defence. Well, I think that's a whole topic for a separate podcast, because I think there's no way to turn something that you have based around 10 and 20 year timeframes into something that responds to more urgent timeframes, which is what the environment we're in now. There's that joke about the person is lost in the middle of Ireland, asks the farm which way to go, how do I get to Dublin? And the farmer says, I wouldn't start from here. You cannot start with the current approach and the investment plan of a 10 and 20 year cycle. So no, but that, but- I think it's a separate podcast. The government has said when it accepted the strategic review, it was going to do a couple of urgent things. So it was going to do guided missile production, domestic, urgent. And so far, the only, only initiatives we've got are getting big American companies that make stuff in America for Americans to start trying to produce a a couple of smaller items here right at the time when the US can't get enough of its own stuff and the US companies that we're relying on are supplying two wars, one in Ukraine and one in the Middle East. To me, the moment now for the government on guided weapon production is to show they can get an actor that isn't Lockheed Martin or Raytheon to start to produce weapons here because that's the only, only way we could have a reliable supply. Well, I I agree. I If you're simply assembling US components in Australia, you haven't really fixed the supply chain problem, but they're the same weapons at the same exquisite cost as what we're going to get anyway. And they're the same kinds of weapons as the US and the UK are firing 
firing off in the Red Sea or the Ukrainians are firing off in the war in Ukraine where you are using million dollar weapons to shoot down thousand dollar drones. So we need to find a way to break out of that. And as both of us have argued many times, that is a place where Australian industry can play a role, not merely as subcontractors to the overseas primes, but they have the ability to design uh, solutions that can be rapidly put into effect now by using things such as expendable drones to counter those drone drones. threats. Yes, and those companies are making those things, they're selling them to other countries. The American government is buying them to supply the Ukrainians with. So I think the May budget has to show some confidence from the government in Australian industry. And the only thing that will show confidence is cash flow. So there needs to be a provision in the May budget that's to be spent on Australian industry in the world of the small, the smart and the many. And that means guided weapons, drones, munitions. That's what that means. Hmm. Then, I don't think it's much comfort to most Australian industry to know that at some point towards the end of the 2020s, they'll be supplying widgets into the uh, the Hunter-class frigate, for example. I mean, that is not going to be developing a, a viable Australian defence industry. No, and time is not our friend. So plans that come to fruition in 2033 are interesting, but it's what's done between now and then that's important. So another point here that the government has set expectations around is the surface fleet. So the strategic review was the father to another review, the surface fleet review by Admiral Hilarides, who'd been a proud defender of the Hunter-class frigates before he was commissioned to do this independent review. Didn't he give it to Minister Miles in September? Well, there was a rapid decision out of the DSR, which is that we would do a surface fleet review. So we rapidly decided to conduct another review, which actually was, in the grand scheme of things, done quite quickly by retired US Admiral Hilarides. And that was handed to the government, which rapidly made a decision to do nothing with it. Well, they rapidly made a decision that they would make a decision sometime in the first half of 2024, which we're now in. Yes. Well, you can't really develop a new investment program until you've decided what you're going to do with the surface fleet. So that's the shooter drop in the defence sphere that allows anything to happen around plans in the May budget. So you you need to, if you want to build ships quickly, actual surface warships quickly, you need to do one of two things. You either need to cancel the Hunter class program in its entirety to so free up cash. All nine. Yes, because yep. cutting off the last three saves you no cash until the late 2030s. Well, you spend all the money up front to design and start to produce it, and then you produce less. So the cost per ship goes up, but your first 10 or 15 years of, of cost is the same. Yes. Yep. So you either need to cancel the Hunter Class program completely, or you need to increase the defence budget. To buy a new kind of surface ship. Yes, to do Hunter and something else yep. at the same time. And I guess there is a, a third option there, which is if you really want surface ships quickly and you don't want to increase the overall budget and you still want Hunter is you further gut another part of the defence budget. There's not much to gut in the rest of the defence budget, is there? You'd have to, you could do something like cancel a contract for combat reconnaissance vehicles. It's probably not going to save you a lot of money at this point because a lot of it will have been committed and spent and you're probably going to be in nasty contractual Well, infantry fighting vehicles took a massive haircut. But again, the infantry fighting vehicle money was cut, but it's still roughly the same at the front end. And Mm. that's the issue. If you want money soon, there's not a lot of places to go. So the Prime Minister is going to be faced with, he either chronically underwhelms on what the Navy looks like between now now 
and when the last of the nine hunters turns up sometime in the 2040s, or he tells the treasurer something the treasurer doesn't want to hear, which is you need to give Defence some more money to buy some additional surface ships. Yes, and look, I've talked about this before, but I think we're in a terrible situation with our fleet, both surface fleet and submarine fleet, because I just cannot see the Anzacs lasting until they're replaced by whatever comes next. I mean, if you look at the Hunter timeline, first ship delivered maybe 2032, 33 in service a year after that. If you then have a roughly two-year drumbeat, well, by the time the eight ship comes to replace the eight Anzac, you're 14 years down the track. So yeah, we are deep into the 2040s. Are we seriously saying that the Anzacs will be a frontline warfighting capability at that point in time? Well, and it's I think a similar even, situation even if with on, the submarines. Even if on just technical grounds, you could say the Saab 9LV combat system and the weapons on the Anzac are still the right things for the environment. The problem is they're such old pieces of equipment now. And it's not like a B-52 bomber where the whole thing has been renewed. The structural integrity has been husbanded because they're not flying every day. The Anzacs have been absolute workhorses. And in fact, I think they've been at a higher tempo of exercising and presence in the last few years than before. So they're wearing out fast because they're not being used in war, but they're still being used. And wearing out an old ship means things are going to break unexpectedly. They're not going to be available. So the urgency of doing something with the Navy is quite obvious. And it's a similar situation with submarines. So we're facing strategic risk in both of those fleets. It's it's not like we decided we'd take a high-risk path with one of them and a safe path with the other. We're on high-risk paths for both. Yep. Yes. And the, But the only one where you can retire any of that risk is the surface fleet because you cannot even if you throw money at the wall, get new submarines fast. We know that. The optimised mm. pathway is as fast as you can go. It's still slow, risky, and inordinately expensive. Well, again, we've, we've spoken about this before. If we take the precedent of the Army's helicopter transition, which looked like a relatively straightforward transition by and large, we've ended up with, with no battlefield helicopter capability at all because the government made a decision to re- retire the MRH 90s in one go. Are we willing to do the same thing with our surface fleet or with our submarine fleet? I think that's an area where you, you can't do you that. You can't take the risk. Well, but, I mean, look, I didn't really want to get into the horrible, unbelievable turn of events with the Taipan MRH-90 helicopters, but there are a couple of things out of it, I think. One is we really don't understand what war is with our disposal plans. So when the Australian military retires something, the thing still has service life left. And usually the plan has been to find another military somewhere. Do the Indonesians want the old patrol boats or somebody else and gift or sell them at a bargain price? Or destroy them. And what we're seeing with actual war is everybody runs out of their preferred frontline stuff and then there's nothing else. So the Russians are pulling 60-0, tanks out of storage and rifles out of storage and artillery out of storage. We don't put anything in storage. We get rid of it. No, we see it as a cost. Why? Because we force structure for peacetime. We, but we force know structure for peacetime. The, both the previous government and the current government have been saying war is credible. So the disposal approach that the Australian Defence Organisation has has is completely broken. No. So when, when the Anzacs are retired, for example, ageing as they might be at that point, they should be mothballed. 
They shouldn't be disassembled and buried or sunk as dive wrecks or gifted to some African navy. We should put them in mothballs because if a war happens, we might find them very handy. And the, the debacle of the Taipans, it causes physical pain to anybody that thinks about it. The Germans have just accepted the NH-90 aircraft, the same helicopter, into naval service. And gifted their Sea Kings. Gifted their old to Sea Ukraine. Kings, which so are a, a decades old. We than... retired 15 years ago. They've still had in service, and the Ukrainians are happily accepting them. I didn't see the Germans taking apart their old Sea King helicopters and burying them. I saw them giving them to Ukraine. So well, there's still time for the but, Prime Minister to change his mind, but if he leaves defence to continue, not just with the Taipans, but with this approach to disposal as a strategic plan, that is a fundamental error. Well, but it's, it is a fundamental, deep-seated mentality in defence. So if we've, again, we've spoken about this before. Defence is still living in an era of wars of choice. So when it is only fighting wars of choice, it can talk to the Americans or whoever's leading the operation, and we can find something to send. And again, we saw that in the Red Sea. Oh, we haven't got a ship, but we'll, we'll send some officers to help run the headquarters. So if you are seeing, looking at the world through that lens... Used equipment is not potential value. It is a cost because it costs money to store it, check up on it and maintain it. So that's why we get rid of it, because in an era of wars of choice, it's simply a cost. This shows how psychologically different it is to move from decades of happy behavior to a new era. So we're not in the era of where we get to choose if there's a war or not. The Middle East is showing us that. I think Chinese aggression in our region is showing us that, and Ukraine is showing us that. But a lot of these plans and behaviours, like the disposal plans, are still as if the past is now. So we've got a lot to talk about over 2024, and thank you, Marcus, for making this a very interesting start. As always, it's been a pleasure.